morning, church. Please uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The title of the sermon is The Greatest Sermon Ever. I know that sounds pretty bad, but I'll explain. Uh, So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And when you get there, if you're able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. Um, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Matthew, the apostle, writes this. He says, speaking of Jesus, he writes, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, and that's as far as we're going to get today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for the book of Matthew. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we are, we are now coming to. We thank you for everything. We thank you for the salvation that you give to those who believe. Um, God, we just pray that as we open your word this morning, as we, as we study it, as we try to understand what we're going to be getting into with the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, that you would just give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would remove me as much as possible from it so that I don't mess up what's in your word. Um, And and Lord, we just pray that for those who know you, they'll be edified by your word and transformed and be made more more like Jesus. We pray for those who don't know you, that they'll hear your word and be called from from darkness into light and they'll be saved. And we pray in everything, Lord, that, that you be glorified, that you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus, our Lord's name, that we pray all of this. And it's, we pray this all, amen. Please have a seat. Now, when some of you heard the title to my sermon, you probably thought that I lost my mind. Um, you know, like, like how would I t- why would I title my own sermon, The Greatest Sermon Ever? Well, not so fast. I'm not talking about my sermon. This one's probably going to be pretty lackluster. Um, what I'm talking about is Jesus Christ's sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, okay? That is the greatest sermon ever. Without a doubt, it is. It's so powerful and so memorable that that Jesus' sermon is even quoted by famous pagans, by famous unbelievers throughout history, and they'll quote it favorably. So my sermon this morning is actually just an introduction to Jesus' sermon. It's his sermon that's the greatest one, okay? Jesus' sermon is so important that really starting it requires us to act as if we're starting a new book of the Bible. You know how when we start a book of the Bible, there has to be an introduction sermon to kind of lay, to give us the lay of the land? It's the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so that's what this sermon's going to be. It's going to be an introduction. That's why I'm only getting through two verses, and actually neither of those verses even start the sermon. They're just the, the build-up to it. Now, the question for us is why is the Sermon on the Mount so important? Why has it impacted world history the way it has? Well, simply put, it answers the great question that is asked by all humanity in all cultures in all times. No one else has successfully answered this question. And so what is the question? It's this. How can we experience true human flourishing? That's the question. How can we experience true human flourishing? How do we acquire happiness, joy, blessedness, and perfect peace? And when I mean perfect peace, I mean in our lives, with other people, and most importantly, with God. How do we get there? That is the ultimate longing of the human heart, whether they realize it or not. Realize it or not. And yet getting there is impossible, impossibly elusive. So what I'm telling you is the, the question has a correct answer. Jesus gives us that answer in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And so we're going to be here for a while. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time where we're going to get that answer unpacked. Truly, I am exceedingly happy that we're starting the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I've been wanting to get here for a while. Now, given that this is just an introduction to it, um, there's really no main point of the text for me to give you because the text we went over is Jesus sat down and opened his mouth, okay? So there's the point. Um, But in in terms of the sermon, as I said, there's not going to be that point that drives it because really what I'm doing is introducing the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And so with that, let's begin. It goes without saying that the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous part of the Bible. I don't know if you realize that. But it is known to some degree all over the world, where, as I said, even pagans would quote it, like Gandhi would quote it out of context, but he would quote it, right? No single message has carried the same kind of influence in all of history. 
And I want you to think about some of the important speeches in our own American history. You've heard of George Washington's farewell address, but how many of you can even quote three lines from it? You've heard of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, but besides four score and seven years ago, how many of you could quote any part of it? How many of you even know what the Gettysburg Address is about? You've heard Franklin Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech, but how many people here could even quote a hundred words of it? You've heard of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, but just about all of us could only repeat the same one line of it, right? The one line that we, we, we hear all the time. Yet these are the speeches that moved and shaped our society over the last 200 years. When President Obama got elected as the first African-American president and he gave his inaugural address in January 2009, it was said by all the media outlets that this speech was so good that it would be etched in stone and would be remembered forever. Here we are 14 years later and I don't think any of us could quote a single word of it, right? That is what our country, that's the best speeches our country has to offer. Our people have to, to offer. Yet when we compare it with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, well, think about this. The Sermon on the Mount is known worldwide. It's been quoted in full or part for 2,000 years. It has spread and been repeated in more languages than we can even count. In the first three centuries alone of church history, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount, was more quoted by the church fathers than all the rest of the Bible put together. Okay, this was their focus. In fact, historically speaking, the Sermon on the Mount is the most commented upon portion of Scripture throughout all of church history, meaning more commentaries, more ink has been spilled over this text than any other text of the Bible. And so I say all that to let you know that what you believe about this text is very important. It is a litmus test that reveals your bigger theology. So, with that said, it's important to know, I think, first, how Christians of the past have read this passage. We are not the first Christians to come to the Sermon on the Mount and open it up and read it and see what it says, okay? And so we're going we're gonna to do a quick survey. Listen, this sermon that Jesus preaches, this Sermon on the Mount, it sets a high standard. Some would say that it's an impossible standard, Some don't see how you could read the Sermon on the Mount in this hand and then Paul's letters in this hand, right? They think that they contradict each other because with Paul, we're told that we're saved by grace alone. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone and the works that you do have no bearing on that. But then you read the Sermon on the Mount and you get the impression that what we do matters, right? Very much so. So in light of that, how do you, how should you read the sermon? Well, let's see how it has been read. The early church would answer this question and say, we see no problem. We see no contradiction between the Sermon on the Mount and Paul. In fact, the early church believed that all true believers could and should live according to the Sermon on the Mount, that we would all progressively grow into being able to live into its demands. Now, the medieval church, a little later, thought it was too simple. So they divided the sermon up into two concepts, precepts and counsels. They said the precepts are for all Christians to obey. But there's some parts that are just too high. And so they called those counsels, and they said that's only for the clergy. Only the most holy of men, which would be the leaders of the church, could possibly live up to it. And of course, that distinction between the lay persons and the, and the clergy still exists very strong in Roman Catholicism, and, and they agree with that. There's precepts and there's councils. Everybody should keep the precepts. The big dogs could keep the councils. And what they would say is this sermon in general should build virtue in, in everybody who reads it. Well, then you get to the Protestant Reformation. So we just flew through 1,500 years pretty fast, right? So told you it was going to be brief, <clears throat> at least the survey. The sermon won't be brief. It never is. But anyhow, um, then you get to the Protestant Reformation. You get to Martin Luther, and he saw the Sermon on the Mount being the same in the same light as the law of Moses. He said that its demands were impossible, and so it's not meant for us to follow the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, it's designed to show you that you can't and bring you to the throne of grace, begging for mercy, meaning it's only meant to get you to the cross. So in Lutheranism, the sermon was only used in a negative sense, kind of like the only way they used the law of Moses, to show you that you can't do it and you need Jesus. Therefore, it's neglected in their tradition. See, to Luther, everything in the Bible was summed up into a law-gospel contrast. Every word of the Bible either falls under law or it falls under gospel. And he said the law only has one purpose, to make you see the need for the gospel. 
not supposed to live by it. You're just supposed to see the need of the gospel. So if the Sermon on the Mount was defined as law, once you have the gospel, you don't need the Sermon on the Mount anymore. And that's why in their tradition, they neglected a lot. Now, he would pull things out of the sermon to say this is how government should act and this is how people should act. But for the most part, Sermon on the Mount doesn't matter. Once, once you come in contact with Paul and justification by faith, you don't need the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Luther was not the only Protestant reformer. There's another tradition called the Reformed tradition or the Calvinist tradition associated with John Calvin. And they took a different track than Luther. The Reformed tradition said that, no, 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 this law-gospel contrast, that doesn't work. They opted for a third use of the law. They believed in a productive use of the law, that, that to them, the law is grace. Okay? God calls a people into relationship with him through covenants, right? So if you have a relationship with God, it's through a covenant. He will be your God, you will be his people, and then you, he gives you his standards by which he wants you to live for his glory and your good. So to them, the law is just something that, that helps us live for his glory and our good, and then by grace, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can meet the law. So for Calvin and the reformers, they're like, of course you could live according to the Sermon on the Mount, and you should. You should be growing into it. And I think big picture, they're right, okay? The Reformed tradition, I think, is right on that. But let me talk about the modern readings. Once you get to the 1800s, you get to the modern period, and the modern interpretations of the sermon are just too many to count, so I'll tell you this. They fall in one of two extremes. Either they're hyper-individualistic. Um, they, they fall under the, the branch of existentialism, where it's all about you, and it's not about doing, it's being. You're a human doing, not a human being, or whatever, right? And so it's all about you becoming what you're meant to be through the sermon, or the other extreme is liberalism, Protestant liberalism, that, that the sermon isn't about doctrine, it's about ethics. It's only about loving your neighbor. Jesus isn't the savior, he's just a moral philosopher, he's just a good teacher. You do what he says, then you're going to open soup kitchens and you're going to be loving your neighbor and, and so forth. But doctrine doesn't matter. Redemption, atonement, all that stuff, regeneration, it doesn't matter to them. And they couldn't be more wrong. Right? It's completely wrong. What you believe about God matters. If you don't believe the right things about God, you're not saved. Okay? So doctrine has to take a first seat over practice. Okay? But practice is still important as well. Okay? And that kind of brings us up to the present on this. It provides an overview of how people have tried to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now, some of what has been believed has been partially right. A lot of it was mainly wrong. Okay, for the early church was right when they said that the ethical demands of the sermon is something we as believers will grow into. But where they were wrong is they left out the grace piece. We need God's grace to be able to do it. The medieval church was completely wrong in arbitrarily dividing the sermon into precepts and counsels, but they were right to think it's something that'll build virtue in us. Okay, they were absolutely right about that. Martin Luther's view of the law of Moses is wrong. And likewise, his view of the Sermon on the Mount is wrong. But he is right that God's standards of the law and the sermon should remind us of our own inability to keep them perfectly. And therefore, it should, in some way, point us to Jesus, to depend on Jesus Christ's righteousness for our salvation, since he did live perfectly, okay? In the Reformed tradition, as I said, they got the big picture right. But my only critique of them is they didn't know as much about the sermon as, as we know today, like its vocabulary and its concepts. So they got the big picture right, but some of the individual pieces um, they didn't get right. And so I think with their big picture, but then our knowledge today, we're able to read this sermon and we're able to, I, I would say, get it right. And, and it should change our lives. And then just one more group to throw out there that I almost forgot are the dispensationalists. And I know it's a fancy word, but it's a very popular uh, form of Christianity, and, and especially in America right now. And it, it sees that God has one plan with Israel and one plan with the church, and they're completely different um, in their view. And so they would say the Sermon on the Mount's only for Israel. It's not for the church. They couldn't be more wrong. The Sermon on the Mount is for us, and we are supposed to live it out, okay? So that kind of gives you the survey, you might be asking to yourself, okay, smarty pants, if they all missed important pieces of what this is about, then what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? Good question. Glad you asked, okay? Listen, the way Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the words that he uses, the promise that, promises that he makes, it all makes it clear of what kind of message the Sermon on the Mount is. It is a combination of Jewish wisdom theology 
and apocalyptic theology. And I know everybody knows what that means, right? Because if you, no, I'm just kidding. It's real easy, though. When I explain it, you'll be like, oh, I do know what this means. But really what it is, is it's both those together. Jewish wisdom and apocalyptic theology. So let me just define these real quick. Jewish wisdom theology is the teaching and thinking that you find in the wisdom parts of the Old Testament. You ever read the book of Proverbs? or Job, or Ecclesiastes. That's wisdom literature. And there you find a theology. You find a, a way of, of, of looking at the world and understanding God, okay? And so the focus in wisdom, in the wisdom parts of the Bible, the focus is how does one live wisely in this world? See, the answer is that God built the world according to wisdom. There is a law of cause and effect that he built in. For example, if you plant seed at the right time and you water it properly, then at the harvest, what happens? You have a crop. You have a yield. But if you sit on your keister and do nothing the whole year, what happens? You starve, right? That's common sense, but that's wisdom. That's how the world works. If you spend your time gossiping about people, you're going to hurt them. And ultimately, you're going to make a lot of enemies, and you're going to have a bad reputation. Okay, that's to be the fool. But if you guard your mouth, you speak the truth in love, and you seek the benefit of others, then you're going to have friends, you're going to have allies, and you're going to have people who think well of you. You'll have a good reputation. That's being wise. And I could give examples all day, but I think we understand how wisdom theology works. The point is, how can I live in a way that makes sense of this world and makes sense in this world? But wisdom literature also reminds us it is a fallen world. And so sometimes even when you do it right, things outside of your control happen and things could still go bad. Think of Job, right? And then that's where Ecclesiastes comes in and tells us at the end, it really comes down to this. Love God, fear God, and keep his commandments. You want to be wise in this world? Fear God, keep his commandments, live according to the rules of wisdom that he built into the world, okay? So that's the first thing I'm talking about, that this sermon is all about. But the second word I threw out there, apocalyptic, I mean, we tend to think of like end of the world movies and stuff like that, but the word apocalypse just means to reveal, okay? The book of Revelation is the most known uh, work of apocalyptic writing. Okay, but apocalyptic or apocalypse refers to specific beliefs about the world right now and what's going to come, about the future. It's the idea that beyond this world, there is more than what our eyes can see. There is heaven. There is God. There is a spiritual war that involves angels and demons. At times in the Bible, we will see God open the eyes of his servants so that they could have a glimpse of this reality. Like Elisha seeing the chariots of the Lord take Elijah into heaven. Or Elisha's servant seeing the, the, the armies of the Lord, you know, it, which ended up defeating a, a human army, making them all blind, right? Sometimes the curtain is peeled. Like the book of Revelation, John is able to see what's, what's behind the curtain. So my point is you have this world that we could see, but there's more than just what we could see. And so what it means is the suffering in the world and the wars and the rumors of wars, yes, they are partially because of the foolish decisions and sinful decisions of humans. But it's not just that. There is Satan and demons also manipulating things. It's both, okay? This is the world, the real world, since the fall of Adam and Eve. In Hebrew, it is called the Olam Hazeh, which just means this world. Okay, now often we'll add adjectives like this present evil age or whatever, but it's this age, this world. But the Bible reminds us that a new age is coming where God himself will break into history in a remarkable way, even more remarkable than when he created the universe, even more remarkable than when he freed Israel from Egypt during the Exodus. He's going to break in in a bigger and better way. And when he does so, he will save his people, he will end the spiritual war, he will resurrect the dead, and he will bring forth a new heaven and a new earth where we will live directly in God's presence and we will see him with our own eyes. That is the promise. That age is called the Olam Haba, the age that is coming, okay? So apocalyptic tells you there are these two ages, the present evil age and the perfect age to come. And the way we get from one to the next is by God invading history in some marvelous way and bringing all these amazing things that I, I just mentioned, okay? 
So that's apocalyptic theology. I know it sounds complicated, but you'll be thinking, that's just what the Bible says. Yes, amen, right? What the Bible does is it puts together wisdom and apocalyptic, okay? When you put these two together, then you have this tension, right? You have this tension between living successfully and even prosperously in this present evil world with all of its problems, but you're not making this world your focus because it's fallen, and it's doomed to pass away. So you live rightly and you live faithfully and you live wisely right now and you even get a benefit for doing that right now, but ultimately we live in faithfulness to God and his commands because we are holding out for a better age. That is biblical theology in a nutshell, okay? We do what is right, not only to have a more stable home, that's just a benefit, but we do what's right because we know we're gonna stand before our Lord and we have to give an account, Okay, so that's a apocalyptic and wisdom literature or theology coming together. Now, by the time you get to the first century, the Jewish people had already long combined these two perspectives. I took a, a PhD seminar in Second Temple literature, and first half of class, all it was was wisdom literature. I'm like, where's all the other stuff I see in, in, in the New Testament? And then the second half was all apocalyptic, and then I'm like, ah. And, and, and so pretty much they had blended this all together. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to take it to a level that no one could have imagined. And that's what we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount because God has broken to history in the most marvelous way imaginable. Think of what Matthew has already told us to get us to this point. Who is Jesus? God became a man. The second person of the Trinity added humanity to himself. The Messiah, the Mashiach, is God in the flesh. And the first few of chapters of Matthew made that clear. It also showed us that this man, Jesus, is the fulfillment of Israel's history. He's the fulfillment of Moses' life. He's the fulfillment of it all. He's the one who is uniquely and completely filled with the Holy Spirit, unlike anybody else. He's the one that comes from King David's lineage, who will sit on the throne of David and the throne of God forever. He is the one that, it says, will save God's people, Israel, from their sins. He's the one who will teach them how to live according to the law. He's the one that will bring the new covenant where the law is written on the heart of the believer rather than being written on stone. In fact, he's the one who's going to save all people from, well, not all people, but all nations, all kinds of people from all nations, okay? Not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. He's going to save people from all over the world. Now, Matthew hasn't yet told us how he's going to accomplish all of this. He simply told us that Jesus is the one who will accomplish this. And then he moves us into this sermon, and we're going to get some very interesting things from it. So my point is, the king in our text is here, and the king has a manifesto. It's first for his people, those who belong to him, which we're going to see shortly. But what he's saying is also for the world, okay? And we're going to see that too, and we'll see all that this morning. And so given that Jesus is going to save both Israel and the nations, Jesus' sermon is going to speak not only to the Jews, but it's going to speak to the heart of the Gentiles as well. I'd be remiss if I left this out, but he's going to use specific words that were at home in what was called the Greek virtue tradition, the Roman Greco virtue tradition. And again, I know I'm throwing these historical words out there, but you have to be able to read this text with the eyes that the first audience would have had. Right, And so in that world back then, you had people like Aristotle, Plato, you heard of them, right? You know, morons, remember? Anyway, so, so Aristotle. Aristotle came up with this idea that how do you live the good life? How do you live the good life and how do you enjoy this world? They answered, you have to live the virtuous life. Well, what is the virtuous life? They didn't know, they just made it up. And so as they tried to live it, they could never find it. And their disciples could never find it. But they all knew that they want this life. And there's certain words they used to describe what they thought it was. Jesus is going to use some of those same words. Okay? And the reason I bring that up is whether you're talking about Jews or Gentiles. Okay? All humanity has the same great question. We have the same great question. How can we experience human flourishing? How do we acquire happiness, joy, blessedness, and shalom? which is Hebrew for, for not just peace, but perfect peace. Wholeness, where everything is right. Everything in our life, everything with God, everything with the world, it's all right. How do we get there? Every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, in some way or another, points to the answer. But the answer, like usual, always turns things upside down from what the world would expect. 
You see, the Greeks, they wanted human flourishing, but they thought they could have it apart from the fear of the Lord. They thought they could have it apart from God. And even today, every self-help guru out there promises you wholeness, but all of them, the whole lot of them, think they could do it apart from the one who made us. And they can't. They're doomed to failure. And if you follow them, you're doomed to failure as well. Human flourishing is only available through communion with God the Father, and that only comes to us through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And we will only experience it as we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Meaning the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is apart from him, you're not going to get this. Okay, you're not going to get this. It's through him and him alone. Okay? Now, as the New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, he's a professor, he's actually the one who taught me Greek um, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he said that this, this human flourishing, this shalom, right, it is only experienced through a faithful, heart-deep, whole-person discipleship where we follow Jesus' teachings and his life. Ultimately, that, that's how we get there, right? And it only happens within God's created community, Okay, it doesn't happen out there in the world. It happens within the kingdom. Okay? And when you get saved, he places you as a citizen of his kingdom. It's within his community where you will find this. Okay? And one more thing to add, you can only experience this wholeness in part right now. Okay? You could get a lot of it now. But as long as sin exists in the world and death is still here, you're never going to get it in fullness. It only comes in fullness when the king returns and everything is made perfect. But even now, you could get it to a degree that, that the unbelievers throughout all of history have failed to imagine, right? So we could get it. We could get a big part of it now, but we'll get all of it later. So as we wait for that day, as we wait for the perfect age to come, there's going to be aspects right now that are hard. You're going to face things in your life that are a huge challenge. The sermon will tell you how to navigate it and how to have peace, and yet, it'll also keep you looking forward for the ultimate peace that's to come. So, with all that, I either bored you half to death or got your appetites wet. I hope it was the latter, not the former, okay? I would love to just be able to jump into this text. But there's much that needs to be known first. Otherwise, we might get it wrong. And then we're going to be in the next person's list of all the people who got some of it right and some of it wrong. And I don't want to do that. Right? So I want to give you a legend to help navigate the Sermon on the Mount. And by legend, I'm talking about like, you know how when you're looking at a map and you got that little part in the corner called a legend that tells you what all the symbols on the map means? Okay, I want to give you that kind of thing with the vocabulary that we're going to come across, some of the vocabulary in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm only going to give some of the legend today because we'll forget it. I'll be bringing it up again and again and adding more words as we get further into the sermon. But simply put, the biggest part on this legend are two words, greater righteousness. Greater righteousness, that's ultimately what this is all about. Jesus is calling us <clears throat> to greater righteousness. Now, you should be thinking, well, greater righteousness in what? And the simple answer is in everything. He's calling us to greater righteousness in everything. Now, he's going to load this up with the Beatitudes, which is so amazing. I was hoping to start the Beatitudes, but I just ran out of space. But even reading them, studying them, thinking about them, my goodness, he loads this up. He loads this up with the Beatitudes. And then at the end of the sermon, man, he hits it out of the park with three powerful illustrations about there only being two ways you could pick, the right way and the wrong way. The wrong way leads to hell. The right way leads to eternal life. Okay, he makes it clear. So he starts off with the Beatitudes. He ends with this, this powerful illustration, three of them of two ways, but then everything in between, he's calling us to greater righteousness. He's telling us how to live. Okay, and so he shows us that we're to have greater righteousness with regard to everything. First, to kind of give you the map of the Sermon on the Mount, first he's going to tell us about having greater righteousness with regard to the law of Moses. Then, greater righteousness with regard to your own piety. How do you fast? How do you tithe? How do you pray? There's a right way and there's a wrong way. Then he's going to move to greater righteousness about how you're to relate to the world's possessions, like worldly goods. And then the fourth thing is greater righteousness as you relate to the world itself to other people. So you're being called to have greater righteousness with regard to the law, your piety, your relationship with goods, and your relationship with people, okay? That's where he's going with this. Now, 
You might be thinking, well, why didn't he say great righteousness? Why greater? What do you mean greater? Because the word greater implies something, right? It implies a comparison. Okay, when you add an er on the end of the word, it's called a superlative, which means it's a comparison. In other words, if we're having greater, right, greater righteousness, we're having greater righteousness than someone. So who are we being compared to? Who is the whole point of the sermon that we're supposed to have greater righteousness than? Look at Matthew 5.20. Not very far into the sermon, Jesus loads it up and he tells us. He makes it very clear. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. How many of you have just stopped on that passage and thought about it? Or do we just quickly move past it? Not there, nothing to see here. You know, it's very clear what he said. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, You'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And just to make this clear, the Pharisees and the scribes were the religious leaders that knew the Bible better than anybody else. That's who he's saying you have to have greater righteousness then with regard to the law, with regard to piety, with regard to goods, and with regard to the world. You have to have greater righteousness than them. Now, I suppose before we get into it, there's one more thing I should address, and it's this word righteousness, okay, which in the Greek is the word dikaiosune, okay? This word is going to come up a lot. Now, the reason why I have to bring it up, so this is the other part of the legend, dikaiosune, or righteousness, is too many of us are way too quick to define it like Paul does in the book of Romans and Galatians. And just simply put, Paul in Romans and Galatians refers to righteousness as the perfect righteousness that Jesus earned in his life that he gives us the credit for when we believe. Okay, so dikaiosune, righteousness, and justification are the same word. So a lot of times we read this word and we're like, okay, it's talking about justification. And that is how Paul's using it. He uses it as the idea of keeping God's law perfectly. And since we can't do it, we need the credit of the one who did do it, which is Jesus. He did it for us. Now, listen, that's all true. That's a hundred. That's the gospel. Okay. But even though that's how Paul uses the word righteousness, that's not the only definition of it. Okay. It's got a much broader meaning than that. Matthew rarely uses it the way that Paul does. He just, he just does. And by the way, there's nothing weird about that. Even in English, one word could have a wide range of meaning. And immediate context will tell you what you're talking about. You could have two different teachers. And it sounds like they're saying different things, but they're using that one word differently. And when you get down to what they each mean by the one word, you're like, oh, they're, what they're teaching is in harmony with each other. It's the same thing here, okay? The word righteousness Based on the old, is based on the Old Testament Hebrew word sadaka. Okay. In general, sadaka means to do the things God approves of. If he says it's right and you do it, it's righteous. That's the most simple meaning of it. It doesn't necessarily require that you do it perfectly without fail. Not the way it's used most of the time. Now, when it comes to salvation, yes, that's why we need Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. But what I'm saying is you could take every Old Testament hero. They all have a lot of sins, right? Think of David, think of Noah, think of them. Yet their actions in the Old Testament are still called tzedakah. They're still called righteousness, even though they were sinners. They didn't do it perfectly. So my point is, depending on context, this word might mean what Paul normally means, like justification, which is very specific, or it might mean what the Old Testament usually means, which is very broad, that just, hey, if you do something that God approves of, that's considered righteous. Now, R.C. Sprawl knows, or before he died, he knew that a lot of us Protestants run into a wall with this because of the influence of, of I think, Martin Luther on our thinking. So he said, look, don't let this trip you up. He said, we're declared righteous by faith so that we can live righteously. But the word righteousness is applied on both sides of that timeline. Okay, You can't be righteous on your own. You'll never be righteous enough. So you believe on Jesus, you get the credit of his righteousness. Boom, that's a point in time. But then you get the Holy Spirit who gives you a new heart and you got the word of God and all these commands and then you start living righteously. And that righteousness that you do after you get saved, you get rewarded for. So it's your righteousness, okay? It's your righteousness, but it comes by grace. See, the narrow use from Paul just produces the broad use that we're seeing here. Okay, And so when Jesus, Jesus is just saying, listen, in the way you live, you need to be more righteous than the religious leaders. 
than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's not loopholing it here. You know what I used to do with this text? I used to say, yes, well, clearly what he means is for my righteousness to surpass the Pharisees, he's going to live a righteous life for me and give me the credit of it, and then automatically I'm more righteous than they are. But that's not what he's saying. That is theologically true, okay? But that is not what he's saying. That is us imposing a bunch of stuff into a text because we don't know what to do with it, and that's not the right way to do it. You look back at that text, whose righteousness is it that has to surpass theirs? He says, unless your righteousness is greater than that or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, right? So it's our righteousness, right? That's what he meant. If he meant that, oh, I'm talking about imputed righteousness that I'm going to give you later, he could have said that. He could have easily said that. And if he did, okay, here's the problem, right? If he did, if he would have just, if we're going to read justification by faith into this, which again is true, but if we're going to read that here, then we're erasing the Sermon on the Mount. There's no point in this sermon. When he's telling you how to tithe and how to pray and, and, and how to keep the law and, and how to deal with goods and, and how to relate with the world, if he's just going to impute it all to your account, why is he telling you that? Now, he is going to impute it to our account, but he's telling us this so we can obey it. He's telling us this so we can live by it. And listen, if Christ gives you the credit of his own righteousness, doesn't that give you 10 times more reason to now live in accordance with that? You would think it would. You would think it would. It it, it just doesn't make any sense. Don't you want your life and the way you live to match his declaration of you? That's what this is aiming at. So I bring all that up because I don't want us making the mistakes that people of the past have made with the text. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us how to live the life that God desires for us by his grace, but it is the life he desires for us. It's him teaching us that if we are to flourish under God, then there is a way to live before God and a way to live before man in this world. And yet as we do that, our fullest hope is in the world to come. That's ultimately where this is going. So, That's all the legend I'm going to give you for now. What I want us to do is actually look at verses 1 and 2, because if we're going to start the sermon next time, we have to get through Matthew's introduction to the sermon, okay? And so the thing is, verses 1 and 2 is really the introduction to the introduction, because the Beatitudes are Jesus' introduction, but Matthew has to to get us there. So look at verse 1. It says this. It says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, that seems like a simple statement, but it is laden with meaning, and I'm going to give you some of that. But first, I just want to quickly identify the nuts and bolts of what we just read. First, if you look at it, it gives us a time marker. It says, when he saw the crowds, okay? Now, that should get us to ask, what crowds, right? There's a context here. So then you got to look back at the previous text, and, and what you'll remember, and I've told you this, is, is Matthew arranges the book of Matthew in five big sections, right? Five, uh, five big sections that record Jesus' teaching and his deeds, okay? The first big section began back in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, the last couple verses of the last chapter. And what we saw there as Jesus was going all over Galilee and northern Israel, and he was teaching in the synagogues, he was preaching out to the crowds, he was preaching of the gospel, the good news of the, the kingdom of God, the gospel, and then he was going around healing every disease and sickness, and he was also casting out demons. Well, what we're told in verse 24 is a bunch of people from Syria hear it, and so he gets this really big crowd, and then by the time we get to verse 25 of chapter 4, I'm going to read it, it says, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, which means all of Israel, okay? Well, those large crowds that verse 25 told us about are the crowds that verse 1 of chapter 5 are telling us about. He sees those crowds, and when he does, he ascends a mountain, okay? Now, it's interesting, the next nut and bolt of this is it tells us he ascended the mountain, okay? It uses the mountain, a definite article. There's a specific mountain he has in mind. But what's interesting with that is near the Sea of Galilee, there's only hills. There's no, like, giant mountains, okay? And some of us are going to be seeing this and taking pictures from there very soon, and I'm going to come back with those, and you shall see, okay? 
So there are decent-sized hills, but, but no, no mountains there, okay? And so what, what we're being told is he did go up on a hill to be in an elevated position so he could carry his voice a lot further. Now, Luke chapter 6, verse 17 is going to tell us he actually comes down a little bit and speaks from a more level area. So I think what we're supposed to picture is he was on a bigger hill, goes down to a shorter one that's more level, and then from there, you know, speaks this sermon to these, these crowds, now, why Matthew's calling it a mountain, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But let's finish the, the nuts and bolts of this. Once he's on this place where he's going to teach, the text tells us, quote, after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay? So Jesus sits down, and after he sits, it tells us his disciples, 12 apostles, uh, come and sit at his feet. Now, a little bit about ancient Israel. Teachers would sit down to teach. They didn't stand like we do. In fact, those who were in authority back then always gave their decision or proclamation from a seated position. Kings did that, and so did the religious teachers. In fact, even in the early church, this was, this was carried on. It was normal for the congregation to stand the whole time, and only the preacher was sitting. Could you imagine as long as I preach and you guys had to stand and I'm just chilling, you know, just sitting down, holding my manuscript? That's how they did it back then. And I can tell you, Augustine went longer than I did sometimes, you know, a lot of times. And they would just have to stand there like, man, you know. Um, so, again, that all comes from, from, from the culture of that time. Now, what I'm telling you is if that was the expectation, the teachers sit, and if they're giving an authoritative proclamation, they sit, then it makes sense that Jesus sat down. I mean, he's about to preach the Sermon of Sermons. So he's going to do it sitting down. If, if he's going to give the manifesto of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of which he himself is the king, then yeah, of course he's going to do it sitting down. And you can assume that his disciples, then they come and they sit around him. Because the phrase that we have from that time is when you have a master and you're a disciple, you learn at the feet of your master, meaning he's sitting, then you sit around him, you're in proximity to his feet. I know that makes some uncomfortable. But the, the, the point is, uh, you'd be around his feet. <laughs> in, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 3, Paul says that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis of that time. And so um, that was just the phrase. So picture Jesus sitting, you got the crowds down below, but then you got his disciples sitting around him. And I say all that because we could see there's two different audiences, and that's significant. See, first Matthew told us about the crowds. And so Jesus moves to an elevated position so they could hear, yet they're not his only audience. Second, we're told that he sat down and his disciples came to him. These two audiences are distinct, but they're not absolutely separated from each other. And what do I mean by that? Well, the disciples were chosen by Jesus. They're already saved, except Judas, okay? But they're already saved. The crowds, though, who were following him, it's not so much that he chose them. They're following him based on what they saw. Both are following him, but differently. Now, Matthew presents the crowds throughout his book as a mixed bag. They don't oppose Jesus like the religious leaders do, but they don't display the commitment that the disciples do. They're not antagonistic to Jesus. They would even consider themselves for Jesus, but they haven't fully surrendered to him. Okay? So the sermon is just as much for them as it is for the disciples. For the crowds, it's an invitation to stop sitting on the fence and pursue the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, you will not be part of the kingdom. It's not for fence sitters, is really what he's telling them. Now, for the disciples who've already followed him and were not sitting on the fence anymore, the Sermon on the Mount is a roadmap. It's a roadmap that shows us how to live the kingdom life as kingdom subjects. And so for the crowds, it calls them to become disciples so they could do that. And then for the disciples, it shows us how to live as disciples. Now, I say all that because when we look at what Jesus is saying at all points of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to ask, what does this require of each group? What is he, what he's saying? What does this require of the disciples? What does it require of the crowds? And what that's going to do is that's going to help us. That's going to help us grow personally because we're disciples. But it's also going to help us to learn how to evangelize because how is Jesus talking to those who aren't yet saved with the same information? Okay, so we're going to get quite a bit out of this. This is why I'm so happy to be coming to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so those are the nuts and bolts of verse one. Now I want to go back to the mountain. Why does Matthew go out of his way to use the word mountain and call it the mountain? Well, it's going to be very clear early in the sermon that Jesus is teaching how one should keep the law of God. Now, through whom 
did God give Israel the law? Moses. And where did Moses get the law? On a mountain, Mount Sinai. In fact, there was a very popular Jewish tradition of the time that said Moses was even sitting on the mountain as he was reading the law. So he's authoritatively revealing God's word to the people as he's sitting on a mountain. Well, here Jesus is sitting on the mountain about to do the same. Matthew has already showed us in Matthew so far that Jesus is the new and ultimate Israel and he's a new Moses, a better Moses. We saw the parallels in their births. And then their persecution when they were babies and stuff like that. You know, Matthew's showing us Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Well, here again, he's being presented as the ultimate Moses. Through Moses, God gave Israel the law, but through Jesus, God will tell Israel what the law actually means. See, the Messiah was supposed to either bring a new law or a teaching about the law that that really renews it and makes it understandable. He's supposed to bring the new covenant where the law is on our heart. And that's what Jesus is doing. Okay, so this is the prophet like Moses that Moses said God would send. He's coming to do what Moses did, but better. What he's going to bring down from that mountain is going to be bigger than the Ten Commandments. Okay, and because Jesus is like a new Moses, sitting in authority, bringing the word of God, he is not like the Pharisees. Jesus has authority. Whatever he says is the word of God. The Pharisees can only give you an interpretation of the word of God. Jesus is more like the prophets. Thus says the Lord. God is giving, through Jesus, God is giving us his word. In fact, the crowds picked up on this. At the end of the sermon, Matthew tells us this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Hmm. He's teaching like one who has authority and not like their scribes. Okay, so this is big. Now, to help us see that even further, he then tells us this in verse 2, if you look at verse 2. It says, then he began to teach them, saying. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is an unfortunate way to translate this verse. The words literally mean, he opened his mouth, teaching them, saying. Okay? Now, That sounds redundant when you think about it, right? Of course, he had to open his mouth to teach them. So you might be thinking, I get why our translator smoothed it out and just said he began to teach them. Of course, he's got to open his mouth. But listen, they should have kept it exactly as it is because opening the mouth was a common Old Testament way to signify that something important was about to be said. Okay, when a prophet or a king or somebody important was going to say something from God, a lot of times we're told they open their mouth. It's an indication for the reader to shut up and listen, to start listening. You need to listen up to what God is saying. And also Jesus opening his mouth signifies something else. The Pharisees and the scribes had no intrinsic authority of their own. Although a handful of them had what was called smika, a kind of authority, they couldn't say, you've heard it said, and quote the law, but then say, but I say to you. They couldn't do that. Jesus alone has that kind of authority. Okay, the Pharisees and the scribes were still under the scripture. The typical Pharisee or scribe had to open the scroll and read God's word. That's where their authority came from. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus respects the scripture. He will tell us early in the sermon that not a jot or a tittle of it will pass away, okay? He respects the scripture. And a lot of times to win arguments, Jesus quotes the scripture. It is the highest authority, right? He'll quote it, he'll open the scrolls in the synagogues, but here he's sitting on a hill or a mountain like the new Moses. He's not opening a scroll. He's bringing God's authoritative word, He's bringing God's manifesto of the kingdom of God, and so he opens no scroll, he opens his mouth. You're supposed to get that contrast. Rather than having to open a scroll, he opens his mouth. Who is this guy? Who can do this? If he were just a regular man, the crowds would have immediately thought he was a lunatic. But by the end of the sermon, they're like, he teaches like one with authority. That's their way of saying, we just heard the word of God. Okay, they were able to tell by what they heard. Their ears were able to pick up that these were words from God, and that's why they marveled at the authority of it all. Listen, I could get up here behind this pulpit, and I could start talking from my own opinion, and I could say, but I say unto you, and and just do that. And you might put up with me for a little while, because we know each other, and I think you like me, but if, if I were to do that for multiple weeks in a row, and I'm not giving you the scripture, 
I'm just giving you political talking points or a bunch of, but I say unto you. Eventually, you're going to get tired of it. You're going to be like, Brian, Josh, John, get them out of here, you know. And, uh, and you would be right to do that. You have the expectation that I give you God's word. But here's the thing. I can only give you God's word by opening the book. I can only give you his word by opening the book and explaining it to you rightly and showing you how to appropriately apply it. But let me ask you something. Does any of that come from my own authority? No. Everything I say is only authoritative in that it is faithful to the text. Anything I say that doesn't line up with the text, you can throw out. Okay? It has no intrinsic authority. And so what that shows you is a faithful reading, explaining, and applying of the text is only authoritative because it's of the text. It explains the text. The authority is here in the word of God. I cannot simply show up and open my mouth and act as if that would be enough. I have to open the book, praise God. But what this shows us about Jesus is he's in a class all of his own. He could sit atop this hill and open his mouth and it has all the authority of the book. So much so that now it's in the book. Think about that. What he said there is now in the book because it has all the authority of the book. That is who we're talking about here. That's why this sermon is unparalleled because it's not an interpretation of God's word. It is God's word. And that's why it's so important. Now, there's only one more issue I need to address before we could, we could wrap up. And you might think this is a dumb question, but was this a real, a real sermon Jesus actually preached? You might say, what? That's, that's dumb. But listen, Crazy enough, not everybody believes Jesus actually preached the sermon. You might be like, what? And I'm not just talking about liberals, okay? Matthew, I'm talking about theological liberals, not political ones, Dad. Okay, not talking about CNN. Um, So since Matthew has arranged the book of Matthew as five sections where it has Jesus' teaching and Jesus' deeds, a lot of scholars, even conservative evangelical ones, think that, that what Matthew, it's not like Jesus' life is going to fit neatly in these five sections. And so what they're thinking is that Matthew took teachings that Jesus said all throughout his ministry, and then he combined them and arranged them into these five teaching blocks. And so he would have done the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. Let's say that I wanted to show you everything the Bible says about justification by faith alone. I would go to all the verses that show justification by faith alone, and let's say I line them all up and put them in a, a nice biblical sermon for you. It's still the word of God, but the arrangement's coming from me, okay? But the words you're reading would still be words that God actually inspired. And so some folks think that's what Matthew's doing. He's got the collection of all of Jesus's teachings, and he's arranging them for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's still the word of God. And the reason why they think this is the case is because Matthew's version of the sermon is way longer than Luke's. Second, Matthew doesn't care about being chronological. For example, after the sermon, we're going to see Jesus call more disciples to get us to the 12 apostles. But in Luke's account, he already picked the 12 apostles before he gave the sermon, okay? And so pretty much they're just saying, look, Matthew's just arranging things thematically. And so they're saying that the sermon should be seen in the same light. And then finally, there's some things that Matthew, that Jesus that Matthew has Jesus teach in the sermon that the other gospel writers will put at other times and locations. So again, they're going to say, look, all that means is Matthew just faithfully took Jesus's teachings and constructed them into a single unit here. Now I'm going to tell you, I disagree with this. And I think this is a real sermon that Jesus preached because these points they make have real easy answers. Matthew having a longer version doesn't mean it didn't happen. Remember, each gospel author is writing to a particular audience with a particular purpose, and so how much they include is dictated by their audience. Matthew is far more concerned with showing the Jews of his day that Jesus is the prophet that Moses promised, and so he had to include it all here. He had to set it up exactly this way. Luke's writing to the Greeks, okay? They don't need all that. They don't know all this Old Testament background, so that's why Matthew's is going to be longer. And on the second point, I agree that Matthew's not being chronological. Okay? I agree the 12 apostles are all right there as he's teaching this sermon, but that has no bearing on the sermon itself. Matthew's method in each block is to put the teaching first, then the deeds. 
Okay. Once he's done with these teachings, he's going to go to the deeds and get us to the 12 apostles. And then they're going to roll into the, the next phase where he's teaching us about evangelism. But it doesn't mean those deeds happened after the sermon. That's just the way Matthew's arranging it. Let me tell you what Jesus said, then I'll show you what he did. So it's really not, not a problem. Okay. And then the fact that, well, what about the fact that some of what Jesus says in the sermon, other gospel writers have him saying in other locations? Like, really? What's so hard to believe about that? You think he taught everything he taught only once? I'm going to give you a little secret. Some of you may have figured this out already. But if I have a good illustration that ends up in one of my conclusions, and then two years later I'm writing a sermon where I'm like, I think that old illustration will work in this one, I cut and paste and I don't change nothing. And I put it there. And so some of you may have picked up on that. Wait a minute. He used this illustration in a different book and different passage. Fraud. No. If it works, if it's a good saying and it helps you remember what's in the text, I'm telling you, every preacher does this. If you've been preaching for a while, you're going to use the you know, same cross-references. You're going to use some of the same arguments when it comes up again. Why would Jesus not do that? You think his disciples are going to get everything after just one hearing? No. Good teachers are going to repeat what they teach and multiple times, multiple places. So the bottom line is this, kind of to sum that up. When you read Matthew, he's giving you every impression that this sermon really happened in a real location, which you have real crowds, you have real disciples. It's when he saw the crowds, right? And so it gives us markers of time. It gives us markers of location. Um, it's near the Sea of Galilee. Honestly, to me, I think that'd be dishonest if the sermon ever happened. Let's create a fake scene and then give a sermon that never happened and present it as if it did. I don't know what else you'll call that. Now, some scholars will say, yeah, but back in the writing conventions of the time, they were allowed to do that. Listen, I read a lot of stuff from that time, and I haven't seen that yet. Sometimes I think people say stuff just because they think it sounds smart, and they hope people, they hope no one will check it out. I checked it out. So, point is, this sermon really, really happened, okay? So, Kind of wrapping up, like I said at the beginning of this, the Sermon on the Mount is so big that it has to be treated like starting a new book of the Bible. So it requires an introduction like we had before we could dive into it. We hit the first two verses in order to set the stage. And so next time, we're going to begin those Beatitudes we were singing about earlier. And those Beatitudes are Jesus' introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached on this side of eternity that will ever be preached on this side of eternity. And so I can't wait to get into it. Even studying the Beatitudes, one reason I'm bummed out is because when I was studying the Beatitudes, man, my heart was burning with godly desires. And so it's my prayer that as we start talking about these things, your hearts will burn with godly desires as well, that, that this sermon will transform us like it's supposed to. Jesus' sermon, that's what I mean. And so let me just have a preview for a second. Verse 3, if you look at it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now I'm going to explain next time that blessed is not the best translation choice for this, but even without explaining that, what do we see? We see that the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. I want to know what it means to be poor in spirit. I want to be in poor in spirit as I come before my Lord. Or verse 4, thunders this. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a lot of things to be mourning about. A lot of things that we probably don't mourn about that we should. And so blessed are those who mourn. That needs to be unpacked. And when it is, I think it will change your entire way of thinking. It did mine this week and really broke me. And then I'm like, oh, I'm not even going to get to it. But next time. Okay, or what about verse 8? Blessed are the pure of heart. For they will see God. They will see God. That is the promise of all promises. That is what the book of Revelation ends with. Do we even know what it means that we're going to see God for all eternity? We'll have an idea, okay? As I said, I'm disappointed that I don't get to start these now. But what I'm asking you to do is learn and remember what was taught today, okay? Because this is all about how we're supposed to live in this world right now in light of the world to come. So start thinking that way now. Okay, you, like everyone else, you believer, just like everybody else in the world, you ask the great question, how can we experience true human flourishing? My suggestion to you is to start reading parts of the Sermon on the Mount every day until we're done with it. Pick a part, read it, think about it. Think about the words, squeeze every drop out of them. And then in the meantime, approach the Lord like his disciples, because you are his disciples. You've come to learn from him. Sit at his feet, hear what he says, believe what he says, do what he says. And that's all I could give you in an introduction sermon, okay? Now, for those who don't know Christ, I want to challenge you with this thought. 
Every society and all their greatest minds have tried to answer this question. How do we experience true human flourishing? They tried to answer it with some center other than God. And how did it work out for them? The Greek philosophers and their disciples, they all died unsatisfied. So philosophy doesn't work. How about the famous religious leaders of world history? How did they answer it? Siddhartha Gautama, the one who founded Buddhism, said just detach yourself from the world and stop caring. That's how you could flourish. So if your ear gets ripped off, just convince yourself, I never wanted my ear anyway. I could tell you that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And no Buddhists live that way. But that's what's at the heart of their faith. Okay, Confucius, the great Chinese philosopher, said if you get these five relationships right in your life, it'll all be well. He died as a political failure, exiled from his position, and his system of belief, even though it won the day, it prevented a lot of advancement over the millennia in China that otherwise would have been possible. What about the so-called prophet Muhammad? To him, the good life is to seek and plunder other people. Take the sword to all the places that won't confess Muhammad. You are allowed to kill them, and you're allowed to steal their stuff. That does not bring you the good life. And if you believe that Islam is different than that, then just go read the Quran. Okay, don't go read, you know, gosh, forgive me for saying this, white performative liberals, you know, out there telling you that this is, they're not just white, performative liberals. Gosh, there's no recovering from that. I apologize. But, but the thing is, I was going to try, but I remember you just keep digging when you keep trying to talk your way out of that. The point is, there's a lot of folks out there that try to present Islam as something that's, that's nicer and different than it is, but it's not. Read it. Look at its history. I remember when I was an undergraduate getting my degree in history, I took a class on Islamic civilization because I was interested in it. 80% of it's the sword. I could tell you it's the sword. Okay, so apart from religious leaders, what about our society? Our society is very secular. We don't care what the religious leaders say. We don't care what the philosophers say. So what do they tell you? They tell you buy a bunch of stuff. That'll work. And when it doesn't work, what then? Okay, well, we'll tell you what. Build a fake personality on social media. Take pictures of yourself with filters that make you look nothing like you really look in order to feed that vanity of yours. And what happens? More emptiness. Okay, okay, if that doesn't work, then defy your biology. Carve out your identity to be whatever you want it to be. Go against nature. Go against biology. Go against common sense. And how does that work? You know, although it looks like more and more people are giving into that and trying it out, and the numbers are increasing, guess what else is also increasing? Every single metric of mental illness. Suicide among that community has gone up. Depression among that society has gone up. And you think about it, we're in the most tolerant, accepting, like every corporation is pushing it. Okay, the people who are being silenced are those who won't go along. They're being canceled. Has it brought the elusive happiness that the folks want? No, they're, they're killing themselves in bigger numbers. And they're, they're doped up on medication in bigger numbers. Listen, we are seeing our own version right now play out in our society of what happened in the late 1960s. As you guys know, in the 60s, you had love, love free love, drugs, and rock and roll, and all that kind of stuff. Society gave itself to, to sex, feminism, LSD, um, and the starts of the LGBT revolution. By 1968, at the peak of it, when our country was in its biggest chaos, you had millions start waking up to this. This is empty. This is destroying us. And for the first time ever, their ears were ready to hear Jesus say, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and millions responded to that call. Were their lives messy for a while? You bet. Okay, there's consequences to some of the stuff they did, some of the drugs they took, some of the decisions they made, but eventually things got set right. Eventually they were at, they had that peace that they had been looking for. And I say we are at a similar cusp because the promises of the world are empty. Human flourishing are not, is not going to come by the madness that we are seeing. Instead, you're going to see more and more and more broken people with much longer lasting damage because of what they're doing to themselves. We're going to see them come out of this. And they're going to they're gonna realize it was all empty, and their ears will be ready to hear. They will finally be ready to hear. You think this massive revival that happened among a bunch of Gen Zers and Asbury that's spreading, you think this, this is happening for no reason? 
It's because of the emptiness and the brokenness that that generation is now realizing. They, they bought something that's destroying them. And so now, many of them are like, no, we want something different. And so, there is a teacher, and there is a king who knows the answer. Jesus is that teacher, he is that king, and he gives us that answer in his Sermon on the Mount. Across the globe today, wherever you go, you will only find whispers of the wrong answers from the philosophers and the religious leaders of the world. But of Jesus and his sermon in every hemisphere of the planet, in every minute of the day, in, not, if, in hundreds if not thousands of languages, his words, his words are being repeated again and again, and people are finding life in them. And if you don't have that life, you could find life in them as well. Jesus makes it clear in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And our society hates that. They think that's arrogant. How dare Jesus say he's the only way? Because one, he's the only one who teaches this way. He's the only one who has the right answer. And number two, unlike all the other ones, all these other leaders, Jesus alone is God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, never sinning once. All these other guys sinned as many times as you have, if not more. Jesus never sinned once. Jesus alone went to that cross to pay the penalty of everyone who would believe him in him, and then he gives them the credit of his perfect righteousness. No other religious leader, no philosopher, no self-help guru, Dr. Phil, none of them can give you that. None of them. There is only one, and he alone came out of that tomb alive with indestructible life. You chase after any other way, you're gonna end up empty. We don't want that for you. So turn from your sins, believe on Jesus with all your heart and be saved. Nothing more to it than that. And if that's something that you wanna do, then come talk to me after the service and I'll gladly walk you through the next steps. With that, we're gonna pray. And then, uh, and then pretty much the worship team's gonna come up. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper together and then we'll be dismissed.